Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. And here with me in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is Kelly Magsiman, who is the Vice President for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress in New York City, I think. Max, are you in New York City? I am. In New York City, we have Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, the author of a new book, which we'll be talking about shortly. And in her palatial apartment in Covent Garden (laughs) with 20 foot ceilings. um, And I imagine a very large staff to wait on you hand and foot is is Corey Shockey. Um, uh, do you, does your, is your staff live read Corey? <laughs> <laughs> my maid, my cook, uh, they are all surly and ill tempered, but extremely good at their work by which I mean to say they are me. <laughs> no one thinks of you as surly or ill-tempered, Corey. Um, let's... Doggone it, because that's what I was aiming for. No, that's, yeah. Nobody who says doggone it is thought of as surly or ill-tempered. <laughs> um, but, but let's, let, you know, I want to start off a little bit um, with Max's uh, book here, uh, because, you know, it's on a subject that's gotten a lot of attention particularly in the past few days. Uh, The book is called The Corrosion of Conservatism, and it is about Max's own personal journey from uh, being uh, sort of raised as a Reagan Republican um, and being at the heart of the conservative movement um, to his alienation by the current form of conservatism in the U.S. And while I don't want to really dwell on the U.S. dimensions of this. I really want to open out our conversation on a on a global basis. Um, Ma- perhaps, Max, you could talk for a moment about why you chose now to write the book. Well, the book, David, is an attempt to come to terms with what's been happening in the last few years. And it's been a, a weird and, and strange trip, not just for the entire country, but for me personally, as somebody who, as you alluded to, has been a conservative my entire life, has spent my entire life within the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And I don't recognize the conservative movement or the Republican Party anymore. I mean, uh, just to give you one data point, at the beginning of 2016, I couldn't find a single conservative who had anything positive to say about Donald Trump or thought that he was remotely qualified for the presidency. And these days, you know, aside from a handful of oddball, never Trump conservatives, It's hard to find conservatives who have anything negative to say about him, at least in public. I mean, how did this transformation occur? It's just been, for me, it's been uh, gut-wrenching and and just 
soul shattering uh, because so many people that I that were my friends and and comrades on the right people I worked on in campaigns with at, at at magazines and newspapers with, they've gone over to what I view as the dark side and. I just can't, you know, it's hard for me to figure out how that happened. And, and the book is in my attempt to grapple with that, to trace my own personal journey towards becoming an American, because I immigrated to this country, becoming a conservative, and how I become disenchanted with the right and trying to come to grips with with what is going on with the right and, and, and re-looking at the history of the right in ways that I had not done before to try to come uh, to uh, to try to assess the source of the current sickness. Well, as you know, Max, we have uh, here in the deep state our own beloved um, oddball, never Trump conservative. conservative. <laughs> I almost <laughs> broke in on him to object to the oddball description. Well, uh, to- Corey is, is, is the only one who is not an oddball. The rest of us are kind of weirdos who are not aligned with the mainstream conservative movement. Well, Corey, I was just wondering, what do you think as you hear Max talk about this? Yeah, I... I share his concern about the direction of the conservative party, both in nominating President Trump and in um, shifting what I thought of as reliably conservative views on issues like the national debt and the Russians and America's alliances and trade policy and the value to our country of immigration and the uh, the exorbitant advantage we have as a country by, by encouraging the world's talent to come here and be one generation safely in the middle class. And it, it's very, it's personally incredibly um, discouraging for me and really hard also to see Lots of people whose political and ethical reflexes I thought I understood uh, make very different choices than I would have anticipated them making, given um, what I knew about them. At the same time, I really think it's important that we win this fight within the Republican Party. And so for me, this is a as I know it is for Max and many of our other friends and colleagues, it's just a really difficult time to try and make sense of what's happening and to try and figure out how to effectively combat it. So I'm really, really looking forward to the education of Max's book because he has been a clarion voice on these issues in the last several years, especially. That is, If I could just jump quickly. Sure. Right back at you, Corey. I mean, you've been a clarion voice, too. And what's been shocking to me is how few such voices there are. I would have never anticipated that the Republican Party and the conservative movement would be as thoroughly Trumpified as they have become. Because, you know, aside from Donald Trump's own personal failings, which are manifest and and legion, uh, and the fact that he's so clearly unfit to discharge the office of president, there is also the fact that he is not remotely conservative. And, you know, he stands against all these conservative principles, a lot of which you just mentioned, and, and others, including you know fiscal conservatism, uh, support for law enforcement. I mean, he's attacking the FBI on an almost daily basis, and, and on and on and on. And yet, all these conservatives have fallen into line behind him. Uh, it's just you know, as 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 Corey and I have been saying, it's just very very dismaying to see what's happened with with people that we knew. I mean, I actually 
in 2016, I wrote that Trump was a character test for the Republican Party. And sadly, most Republicans have failed that test. Well, you know, Kelly, one of the things that it doesn't get as discussed in all of this is that in the past, when when Ronald Reagan was the president, there were real differences with the Democratic Party. And um, and for most of history, there have been real differences. But if you looked in foreign policy at the differences between a conservative and a liberal American, there's kind of, you know, a big overlap between the Venn diagrams. You know, we might be arguing about the level of defense spending, but we weren't going to argue that it needed to be strong enough to defeat the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, or that uh, we should promote democracy. We might debate how we promoted human rights, but there was no debate about whether we should get into these things. And we've now entered this period, which is one of the more damaging but least discussed elements of this thing, where this Trumpist movement has no overlap with either the old sort of Democratic consensus or the old Republican consensus. I think that's right. I mean, I I sit here listening to both Corey and Max, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm a Democrat, uh, and I'm actually mourning what is happening to the, the Republican Party. I don't think it's good for the United States. I don't think it's good for America. Uh, and it's, I mean, frankly, it's not good for our, our national security. So to your point, uh, David, you know, I find that things that were once accepted values for all Americans, Republican or Democrat, the value of our alliances, the importance of a strong military, a strong economy for everybody, uh, political opportunity for everybody, that those values are, are, are frankly eroding. Uh, and I think the erosion at home is, is going to have an impact on democracy abroad and vice versa. So same kind of comment to you, Max. Uh, and I also like to hear Corey about it. This shift within the the Republican Party has has had perhaps a bigger consequence on foreign policy than it's had on domestic policy. And yet we don't talk about it so much because we don't talk about foreign policy as much, particularly when we go from the Kavanaugh show to the Mueller show to whatever. And I'm just, you know, you're there, Max, at the Council on Foreign Relations in the midst of it. Council on Foreign Relations is is run by, uh, you know, a Richard Haas, who is in the Bush administration, who's, who's a sort of a stalwart of the Republican Party, but also of this tradition I'm talking about of some common ground. Um, how, 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 big a problem do you see it as um, for, for the U.S. in terms of our international standing? I think it's a huge problem because Trump is fundamentally at odds with the bipartisan direction of U.S. foreign policy post-1945. I mean, remember that the greatest generation after World War II decided we could not return to isolationism and protectionism that we had to forge new alliances, we had to keep troops in Asia and Europe, we had to promote fellow democracies, and we had to open up free trade. Uh, Even if it meant some temporary loss of market share for the United States, we wanted to bolster our allies, including former enemies like Germany and Japan. And this was one of the most farsighted, altruistic, and visionary foreign policies ever uh, to, to help these countries get back on their feet instead of you know, taking a Trumpian approach would be to try to screw them at every turn, say America first and, you know, squeeze every last penny out of them. That is not what the greatest generation did. And because they took a different and, and more farsighted path, 
they created this uh, American-led world order, which has been responsible for the greatest expansion of peace, prosperity, free markets, and democracy in human history. This is an unparalleled achievement and one that, sadly, I think we've taken for granted and will not truly appreciate until it's gone. And, and what I see today uh, is that it is rapidly waning with the rise of authoritarians around the world, uh, democracies being undermined from Poland to the Philippines to the United States. And Donald Trump is on the wrong side of this global struggle for freedom. He sympathizes with the dictators, not with the Democrats. Uh, you know, his actual policies are very inconsistent. You, you know, he's he doesn't have a, a, a clear through line on, on anything, but his instincts are, are generally awful, uh, which is and, and they are causing our allies to doubt American leadership. I mean, if you're a, another country in the world that's dependent on the United States, why on earth would you uh, rely for your security upon the U.S. in the future? Because you're going to know that even if Donald Trump is not in office, even if he's replaced by somebody who is much more mainstream in their thinking, it's always possible that you're going to get another Trump because there is a substantial constituency in the United States for isolationism and protectionism. And so, you know, Trump, to my mind, is, is the biggest national security threat we face because he is destroying from within what our enemies uh, could not destroy from without. Well, as we've discussed on, on Deep State Radio in the past, also there is a uh, sort of hardwired problem in the Constitution for the United States, which is over the next 20 years, we are going to move increasingly towards disproportionate power for the least populated states who happen to be the reddest states and happen to be the most isolationist states. And so if you were going to predict which direction the Senate was going to go or with the Electoral College, there is a predisposition towards isolationism. And that's a problem. But, Corey, you know, another problem that strikes me about this is 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 related to what the one Max talks about in his book, which is that conservatism has come to mean something that's quite unconservative. And and the right and the left are old distinctions that don't really mean anything anymore. And the world is divided more into a handful of countries that believe in the international order and believe in sort of the post-World War II values and an ever-growing number of countries, uh, a, a number that I personally find you know, shocking, hard to believe, um, that are moving towards a nationalistic or ethno-nationalistic, uh, anti-internationalist stance. And that includes now the biggest countries in the world. It includes China. It includes uh, Russia. There was an election in Brazil over the weekend that has them now leaning heavily in that direction. It includes countries like Turkey, of course, and the Philippines, but also, and, 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 and a number of countries in Europe, but also now for the first time, unlike the 1930s, as I, I wrote about this in a piece for the Daily Beast just now, unlike the 1930s, there is no United States of America with an alternative view saying, stop, you can't, you can't go there. We're going to push back against it, or we're going to at least raise issues of human rights against us. And this, this, this absence, this void, this the, the fact that there is no leader of the free world there anymore while this trend is happening seems to me to be a, a really, really, really big deal and one that we seldom land on in the United States because we're so caught up in the week's Trump news. 
So I agree with you on several points, David. First, that um, all of us are allowing the Trump circus to circumscribe our perspective down to whatever indignity or outrage he has committed that day. And we're not paying attention to a lot of big, important trends, both in our country and in the world. Second thing I agree with you on is that the international order isn't inherently stable. Uh, entropy is the natural state and followed quickly by regional balances of power where states strong enough to impose the rules that they want do it and are challenged by other states. The United States has been the balancer of last resort. Um, I, I think I would disagree with you a little bit on your description of the United States in the 1930s, uh, which uh, didn't, uh, you know, we think about ourselves as the arsenal of democracy, but that's a very late breaking story in the 1930s. Most of the 1930s, we averted our eyes from lots of things that were um, happening, including turning away religious immigrants, in particular Jews trying to flee Europe in the 1930s. So, so I'm not sure our record is quite as strong uh, as you generously gave it, but I agree with you that the United States has uh, vacated the position of being a country whose values drive its foreign policy. And I know I talk about this a lot on Deep State Radio, but the, the values component of American policy is not just important because it reduces the cost of everything we're trying to do in the world. It's also really important for persuading Americans to do anything in the world, right? You can't get my mom excited about uh, defending a Saudi Arabia that would kill a peaceful um, and relatively mild critic of the government in a Saudi consulate in a foreign country when that person was living in exile in the United States and writing for an American newspaper, right? My mom uh, has to be encouraged out in the world by caring about other people's outcomes, not by, you know, the sort of ruthless Machtpolitik that sometimes people like to cast as realism. Uh, and so values really matter for the United States. It, it convinces us to care and expend effort out in the world. And it also dramatically reduces the cost of what we try to do in the world because people are more willing to follow us, more willing to not impede what we're trying to do, more willing to give us the benefit of the doubt, even when we're often wrong because the values that are central to what we do. And by leading with our values in the world, we actually shape the world in positive directions that make it less dangerous for us and for others. You know, when you started talking about values, I saw Kelly edge forward in her seat here because <laughs> I know they've been working on sort of values-driven foreign policy. Maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, as usual, I agree with everything Corey says. Um, but yes, we've been working on at the Center for American Progress uh, a look at a democratic values-driven foreign policy and what that could achieve. And to your point earlier, David, I do think we are 
at an inflection point in the world. And I went back and reread FDR's Four Freedoms speech, which I highly recommend uh, your listening audience take a look at. Uh, that was a speech where he really connected the strength and th- uh, of our democracy at home to democracy abroad and vice versa. And he really made that connection. He made democracy, fighting for democracy abroad a national security uh, imperative. And I think we've fallen away from that. We, we, got, we went through a period in the 90s where everyone thought democracy across the world was ascendant, that it was an inevitable uh, end of progress and or end of history, as Fukuyama said. Um, and we're now at a place where it's not inevitable. In fact, it's it's rolling back across the world. And so if the United States uh, doesn't take action now to stem that tide uh, by locking arms with fellow democracies, trying to find ways to incentivize uh, democracies to stay democratic, which has also been a, a problem in uh, recent years, then we're not going to win. And we're going to be living in a world where you have a Chinese model or a Russia model as the predominant model. And frankly, I don't think most Americans want to live in that world. Right. Well, you know, Max, um, in your periodic visits to us here at Deep State Radio, I'm sure you realize that we like to position ourselves as sort of at the cutting edge. Uh, And our bold, innovative contribution to the foreign policy debate at the moment is – bipartisan consensus you know this it's going back you know it's trying to find the way that things yeah it's kind of edgy it's the way things used to work before uh, because i suspect without having discussed it with you at great lengths that you too would say values driven foreign policy is where it's 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 got to be to some large extent absolutely i mean that's kind of the secret sauce of american power it's because We have, I mean, there's certainly been lots of anti-Americanism in the world, don't get me wrong. But fundamentally, the United States has been seen uh, by by other states, except a handful like the Soviet Union, as a fundamentally benign force in the world since 1945, because we did not take advantage of our position to screw every country in every single way that we could. Uh, We did not try to keep others down. We had a philosophy of a rising tide lifts all boats. And so that basically meant that other countries were willing to acquiesce in an American-led world order. And unlike previous hegemons, you know, going back to the days of, of uh, Imperial France and Napoleonic France, and even before that, Imperial Spain, uh, Great Britain, uh, Wilhelmine Germany, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, etc., all those hegemons in the post would-be hegemons in the post-1648 world, each each and every one of those created a coalition of other states to act as a check on them and ultimately defeat them because they were seen as so threatening uh, to their neighbors. And that has not been the case with the United States. We have not created a coalition of hostile states. In fact, we have led a coalition that has greatly augmented our power, whereas it's countries like China and Russia that have been isolated, that don't have the kind of allies that we have, And for some perverse reason, Donald Trump seems intent on squandering those advantages, on alienating our allies, trying to kiss up to our enemies, and essentially leaving us uh, alone in the world. You know, America first is really a recipe for America alone, which will leave us much less safe and much less prosperous, even though that may not be obvious right now when we're still running on the fumes of this uh, economic expansion. 
Well, I thought it was very neat a moment ago, Corey, when you mentioned values-driven stuff, because I knew that Kelly had just been working on this. And I think it's equally polite that Max brings up hegemons when your last book talks about hegemons. <laughs> um, uh, Thank you, Max. Yeah. But, but, you know, it does raise a question, which is clearly the United States is in a better position than any other country at the moment to act in a hegemonic way. Um, but having said that, it seems that we are kind of pulling away from that in some key places. Uh, and whether you call it hegemonic or you call it simply, you know, the use of our influence to, you know, advance our national interests, part of the problem with Trump was a problem we also saw, you'll forgive the expression, Kelly, with Obama, um, and that is that we're sort of leaning away uh, and that the United States is not, and and by the way, I I lay this at the feet of the first Bush administration because you know we leaned in too hard, and now we have find ourselves leaning away in a variety of ways. I think it's compounded with Trump, in that if anything, he's kind of throwing his weight behind the bad guys, or supporting them, or defending them, or celebrating them. And, you know, whether it was Duterte or the Saudis or his love affair with Kim Jong-un, which is still brings a <laughs> tear to my eye. Um, Get a prenup. Yeah, yeah, that's it's the rom-com of our time. Yeah, that's Steve Began is over there negotiating the prenup, <laughs> the prenup right prenup, now. Yep. Um, but but um, it, it does seem, you know, kind of strange for the world's most powerful nation to be dealing with its power this way yes i strange is is the most egregious understatement i've heard you make in years david that it's i can't figure out whether the president is willfully squandering american power right just throwing money in the air to throwing money out of a helicopter by squandering the alliance relationships and the credit for values that have made America's role in the world so, so cost-effective. That is that people don't, as Max mentioned, people don't ally against us for the most part. Um, and as Kelly said, our values shape the international order in an extraordinarily uh, powerful ways conducive to our interests. Uh, but I can't figure out whether the president's doing it on purpose or he just doesn't understand. And I can make a reasonable case for both of those, but he it's the willful ignorance if he doesn't understand because there's no shortage of people who are trying to gently help him see what a world looks like if the United States behaves no different than uh, Wilhelmine Germany or uh, Philip IV's Spain. And President Trump seems to think that, he, that uh, what political scientists call realism and what is more accurately called uh, willful disregard of others' interests, whether you know that that somehow makes him a tough guy as opposed to uh, working in conjunction with allies to solve the two or three really big dangerous problems 
which would be a realistic foreign policy, but it isn't what President Trump is doing. Is it is it ever possible to get back to this place, Kelly? <laughs> I was wondering that uh, the last couple of days. Um, I certainly hope so, but I think it's going to require, uh, obviously, a new president. Uh, not this one. I don't think he's capable of it. Uh, and I also think it's going to require a consensus among the American people that being engaged in the world uh, is to our benefit. And I don't think that consensus currently completely exists. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, uh, lots of history around it. We can go back to, to various mistakes in foreign policy. But I think there is a genuine feeling like the international order hasn't necessarily worked for most Americans. Uh, they sort of see, and I think this is what Trump tapped into, and which even some on the far left can tap into as well, which is this sense of, um, you know, the anti-globalization, sort of uh, foreign policy elites, us blob people, uh, sort of dictating to uh, the average American what the world's supposed to look like in their in their name. And I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of disagreement about that. So I'm hopeful that uh, we've learned the lessons of history and we can uh, reemerge from this period uh, of Donald Trump. But at the same time, I think we need to address these these core issues with the American public, too. Um, I, I like the way that Kelly sort of throws off the the reference to us blob people. Um, but, um, but you're a blob person. I'm, I'm, I said us blob people. I was referring to myself as well. She We're, did say us. Yeah. She did say yeah, us. Yeah. Well, I'm, I want you to know I'm working hard against it. I had like tofu at lunch and stuff. But but in any event, Max, well, you know, what she was getting at, I you know, it brings me to another point. Maybe it's just being a Jewish boy from New Jersey. I, my first reaction is, how can I find self-hatred in this someplace? But, you know, the, the us blob people have have led to this to some extent. We haven't built the consensus for international engagement, whether it's on trade or on other issues. And um uh, I, you know, to, to, to what extent do we have to go and do some self-examination about how we have ended up in this place? And by we, I mean us blob people. I think a lot. I'm sorry. Were you? Were you? <laughs> you can go first and then Max can go. Either way, it's. I'm sorry, Max. Go for it, Corey. Um, no, go. I, I agree, David, that. Uh, partly the only exculpatory thing I will say is that, you know, this had been, these issues had been established American foreign policy for such a long time. People actually took for granted that everybody understood and you didn't have to win the argument. And we should have seen it coming with trade policy, right? I mean, President Obama campaigned in 2008 on renegotiating NAFTA. And I don't think any of us reacted strongly enough to the anti-trade trends building in both political parties. I think on alliances and some other issues, uh, we were slow to react because we were just genuinely shocked to figure out that people thought the United States could handle a rising China without any friends or allies helping. It seemed self-evident. And so we weren't quick enough on the uptake. The other element that I agree with the line of your questioning on, David, is that the two major international events that that shaped everybody's life are 
the American choices in response to September 11th, so 17 years of war in Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, um, and the 2008 financial crisis and the choices that we made coming out of it. That is, no, everybody in finance turns out to be fine and making a fortune, but a lot of other people lost their houses, lost their livelihoods, lost their confidence in the, the economy and its ability to recover when bad things happen. And so absolutely those of us who were part of those decisions, who were advocates for policies, need to apologize for our mistakes, need to acknowledge where we made mistakes, need to explain why we thought those were the right answers and what we learned from being wrong. That in my, my estimation, Americans are extraordinarily forgiving of mistakes if you acknowledge you made mistakes and explain how you're not going to do it again. But I think as a general rule, you know, my, in my hometown of Sonoma, California, people feel like foreign policy and economic elites have all of the benefits of globalization and are shielded from all of the downsides that they're experiencing and afraid of. And in addition to acknowledging where we have been wrong in the last 20 years, we also have to have better answers. Explain what the policy means are that we are going to help shield people from the stuff they're afraid of. And, and we're failing on the policy front, too. I agree with what, uh, you know, Corey has to say. And in fact, in my new book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, I grapple with my own responsibility, uh, inadvertent and, and, and indirect, uh, for the rise of Donald Trump. And I think part of that has to do with the way I've contributed uh, to, you know, one of the uh, biggest mistakes, uh, maybe the probably the biggest mistake of American uh, foreign policy in the 21st century, uh, which was the Iraq War. And I was certainly a supporter of the war, along with 72% of the American population, along with people like Donald Trump, who now lie and pretend they were not. But, you know, I, I try to be honest in this book and say I did support it. And for a long time, uh, it was hard for me to say that I was sorry or, or to express appropriate regret because, you know, I was defensive and uh, didn't want to provide an opening for critics. Uh, but, you know, now with the passage of time and, and writing this book, it really caused me to reexamine my own role in, in this fiasco and realize, you know, how mistaken I was uh, to advocate for the war. And I mean, I'm, I'm still glad that Saddam Hussein is gone, but clearly it was not worth it. And, you know, this was a misuse of American power and one that many other people warned against. And I, you know, I wish I had listened to them and I've tried to draw some lessons from this uh, from this fiasco including to be much more wary about the use of American power, to be much more wary of uh, preventative conflicts, and, and to understand the limits of our ability to fundamentally transform uh, foreign societies. Uh, you know, so those are all lessons that I've taken on board, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, I think the, the what happened in Iraq really discredited mainstream Republican foreign policy, just as what happened with the Great Recession in 2008-2009, discredited, you know, mainstream Republican economic policy, and that's what created this populist backlash that gave rise to the Sarah Palins and the Tea Parties, and eventually to, yes, Donald Trump. Uh, 
Uh, and so, you know, I, we have to oppose Trumpian foreign policy uh, and economic policy, but I think we need to be, we need to have some humility and introspection about, uh, you know, the, the, the mainstream policy that we supported and its, and its shortcomings. I mean, I still believe, believe me, you know, I still believe in American powers of force for good. I still believe in the American-led world order, but I think, you know, we need to be a lot more cautious about uh, the use of military force. And I think some of us were in that uh, hubristic uh, post-Cold War uh, epoch. Well, we, we just have a couple more minutes left, and I want to give give a last word to you, uh, Kelly, and ask you a question. Uh, uh, and that is, you know, we've looked backward in some of this, backward and historically, um, but also at, you know, traditions in the United States. But as you look out at this world that we're talking about, it's not like any world that we've ever faced before. Um, we uh, face, of course, the the rise of China as the counterpart great power in the world, uh, the rise of the emerging world more broadly, uh, technological changes that change the nature of conflict, the nature of commerce, the nature of um, cultural transformation around the world. Uh, we also uh, face some other issues, including very urgent issues, as the United Nations has pointed out uh, just uh, today with regard to global warming and that there is no uh, time really to address it except the next 10 years. And so one of the divide, you know, we've talked about a conservative liberal divide. We've talked about a conservative conservative divide. We've talked about a left right divide. But one of the big divides, and maybe the biggest one I see, is a past-future divide, a divide between old policies for old world and somehow the need to come up with some new set of ways to deal with this new reality. And I'm just, I'm wondering if you, you, you <laughs> a few you, thoughts on that. <laughs> well, yes, if you, if you know, in sixty seconds, can you? No, but I mean, do, do you see that also as, yeah, as the kind you know, of challenge? One of the, the things I deal with a lot, uh, especially talking to progressives, is there is a generational split about how people see the world. So you talk to young people, even people who work uh, for me at Center for American Progress, and you know they don't have a memory of American foreign policy success. I mean, their memories consist of a relatively incremental post nine eleven war. Uh, you know, 17 years, as Corey said, in Afghanistan, they haven't seen American foreign policy actually produce something serious uh, and beneficial to the world or to them. Uh, I think that's different. We have the memories of Gulf War One. We have the memories of our Kosovo. We have memories of World War II uh, in our generation and our parents' generation. I think that is part of the issue. I think uh, young people haven't seen that in quite some time and so have a very hard time uh, picturing a world in which America leads and does so in a way that is good for the world and good for for the American people. And uh, there's a healthy skepticism uh, among young people. And I think that th that skepticism, by the way, is not just with young people on the left, but also young people on the right. So I do think there is uh, a generational uh, concern. And to your point about uh, needing to look at the, the new world order, I mean, I think we do. We have to, I mean, we're now in a place where we have almost a near peer competitor in China. I mean, they're going to catch up to us by next year. It'll be the number one economy or two years from now, it'll be the number one economy uh, in the world. And that's that's serious. I mean, I think the United States, you know, has to figure out a way uh, to to deal with the rise of China and you know to to I have to go read Corey's book. I haven't finished it yet. Um, but to deal with, you should it, read it. I know, really I know, book. I know. But you know, and that's her on the cover. But we me. haven't had yeah, exactly. But we <laughs> haven't had to to have to accommodate anyone uh, in the last you know 
you know, 70 years. And so we have to make some re- you know, real decisions around what that's going to look like because uh, the U.S. and China right now, I think, are headed on a path towards potential confrontation, which I also don't think is good for the world. So. Right. And the, the anal- and it's, in, it's inappropriate to draw an analogy with the Soviet Union, which was zero sum, right? The, which what you mean by comedy. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good point. And uh, I've reached a point that I know that none of the, th- the three of you guys have uh, because I'm old, you know, and because um, I'm 62 years old. And it used to be throughout my life, I found it absolutely intolerable up until Barack Obama, perhaps, to think of a president who was actually younger than me. Um, <laughs> um, but I have now reached the point in my life where I exclude any possibility of any candidate who's actually older than me. <laughs> Good for uh, you, David. Yeah. Um, that, so no one Biden. in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just think that the, the, the focus needs to be um, on new generation solutions to new generation issues, and we're not going to find those unless we move on. Um, well, fortunately, this is the first big election coming up in the United States where the largest group of eligible voters is millennials. Um, that's never happened before. So that may. So all you young deep state radio nerds who <laughs> delight me with commentary on Twitter, register and vote, my friends, because if for nothing else, you will you will earn the right to stop hearing me talk about the intergenerational injustice of the national debt. If you register and vote. Right. And, you know, we have here the perfect balance. We have two historically Republican people on this show and two historically Democrats. And I think we all can say with a with a common voice that it's not just vote, you know, vote Democratic. No, (laughs) I mean, I, you know, David, I, you know, I agree with that as as somebody who is a lifelong Republican, the only Democrat I've ever voted for in my life was Hillary Clinton in 2016. But now I'm saying to everybody uh, who will listen, vote straight ticket Democratic because the Republican Party has so fundamentally failed in its job as acting as a check and balance on Donald Trump. And and the Republican Party has been so thoroughly Trumpified that if Republicans win in November, it will be a catastrophe. It will be an endorsement of Trump and it will be a message to him to go even further than he's already gone before. And so it doesn't matter that I have disagreements with Democrats, and I do. I mean, I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent, and there's lots of things I'll argue about with with a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. Right now, we need a check and balance. Otherwise, our democracy will be in deep trouble. And the only way to get that check and balance is by voting Democratic. I I, I think we need checks and balances. There's no question about that. Well, folks, we've come to the end of this episode of Deep State Radio. Um, folks, I, can I encourage you to go, if you have not done so, to deepstateradionetwork.com and take a look at our site, which now has lots more content than it ever did, including the production of uh, a daily uh, uh, uh a deep state brief, which we uh, or which we call Deep State Daily, um, because we have a whole department devoted to great names like that, and uh, the, it 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 is available to anybody who registers. You don't even have to pay to be a member. You just register, and you will get that every day, um, and that'll give you uh, access to a lot of the kind of expertise you get here. Of course, we encourage you to become a member because a it helps support what we're doing, and b you know you'll get a mug, and I know everybody wants a mug out there in deep state radio land. Um, uh, we also have water bottles and 
t-shirts. So it's really a bonanza. Um, so go join up, <laughs> be part, be part of the deep state um, revolution and, you know, come back and join us for another episode. Uh, thank you to Corey. Thank you to Max. Thank you to Kelly. Uh, and we'll be back again with you real soon. Bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.